You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit stonegate-church.com. Great to see you. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we are. If you want to go ahead and flip there, that'd be great. So if, if, you're, if you've been with us for a while, you know preaching through books of the Bible is the M.O. And, and we do that for a reason. It's purposeful. That we think it's the best way for, for me to preach personally because it, it chooses what, what I'm going to preach. And it doesn't allow me to get around passages and parts of the Bible that I wouldn't want to preach. Like, I, mean, I don't know of many preachers that wake up on a Saturday thinking, I want to preach submission, right? But when you're going through Ephesians, you have to deal with it, right? And so it, it's... It, it serves me in allowing me to preach all the Bible for you. But on the other side, we think it's the best way for you to listen to the Bible. So you see that Ephesians 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, they fit together, that they go together, how they relate to one another, and you see that they have a context in the Bible that they fit in. And so on both sides, we think it's the best way to, to do this preaching thing. Okay, now that doesn't mean, though, that there aren't times when it's good for a church to take a theme of Scripture, to lift it up, and to try to, 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 to teach through it and asking the Holy Spirit to, to shine a light on that theme of Scripture that addresses the current context and the situation that a church finds themselves in. Okay, that's where we are. For the next two months, basically until the end of the year, we're going to be working through this idea of gospel and mission. How the gospel starts to form a people on mission. That the gospel doesn't leave you sitting. The gospel makes us a sent people. When God saves, he sends. When God pulls in, he then pushes out on mission. Those of you who have heard the gospel and responded to it are now to be heralds of the gospel. Okay, this is the next two weeks connecting gospel and mission together. That when you get the gospel, it leads you to mission. If we're not on mission, it means that we haven't gotten the gospel yet. Okay, gospel, mission, working together here. Okay, so here, here's the goal of this morning. Um, I'm taking just the first step in all this, and I really just want to pose the problem, where we find ourselves and why this is such a big issue and why this is important enough for us to take two months to really address and try to lift up out of the Bible um, to show us and, and hopefully for the Holy Spirit to really form our heart around it. Okay, so we're starting in 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is about to unpack some heavy realities that deal with the gospel here. So this is where he starts. He says this, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. So, So first thing, right out of the box, Paul is saying that the gospel has to be continually recalled in a believer's life and in his mind. That, that in her mind, that, that you've got to continually remember the gospel. That, that your mind is leaky. Your brain forgets things. That if you don't continually remind yourself of the gospel, you're going to wake up and look at your life and realize that you are living as if the gospel is not true. That we've got to continually remind ourselves of the gospel. He is talking to brothers here, to the church in Corinth, just like you guys. He's talking to a church like this and he's saying that you, church, need to remember the gospel. This is why we say things like this. The most important thing you can know in life is the gospel. The most important thing you can remember daily in life is the gospel. It's got to be continually recalled. And I love the, uh, the words of Martin Luther, the reformer, 1500s. He, he said this, commenting on Galatians um, 2.14, he said this about the gospel. The truth of the gospel is the principal article of all Christian doctrine. So it sits right in the center of this thing. And then he says this, most necessary is it that we know this article well, teach it to others, and then I love this phrase, and beat it into their heads continually. 
This is what we all need. We all need the gospel beat into us daily. Every one of us need that. And I, one of the things I pray for our, for our crew here is that we would be a community of people who do that for each other, who are constantly reminding one another of the gospel, what we have and what we are in Christ. Okay, so, so first of all, he tells you that the gospel needs to be remembered. And then he says this. Look, look at the next phrase there. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel. The gospel is good news. Big reality here. The gospel is great news. This is what the gospel is. This is what the gospel means. It means good news. Okay, so I, I love this image. I read it a couple of years ago, and I always just like to throw it in when I talk about the gospel is good news. Imagine prisoners in a POW camp. They are being starved to death. They're gaunt. Daily, some of them are dying. It's a hopeless situation. They are in despair. It is a horrible circumstance to live in. And for weeks, they've been tinkering with the radio. And finally, they get it to work. And they turn the radio on, and they hear over the radio waves that American forces are just miles from their camp. Okay, now now picture yourself as the guard watching this happen. You see people who are hopeless in despair, some dying daily, and all of a sudden, they turn into this mob in there. They're laughing, they're crying, they've got pots and pans, they're beat. I mean, a party is going on. That is the power of good news. And the gospel is that sort of news. It is, it is a proclamation to prisoners that liberation is around the corner. That peace with God can be had. This is what the gospel is. It's good news. It's life-altering, life-changing news. Okay, he goes on and says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. And then he says this, which you received. The gospel must be personally received. The gospel does not pass through pedigree. The the gospel does not pass through your participation in a church. The gospel does not pass through you being a good guy, from you having a good marriage, from you being a good person. The gospel doesn't flow that way. The gospel flows to people who respond to the grace grace of God in faith. And faith is not, I agree with these facts. Or or faith is not, I agree with these facts. Faith is, I trust in them. I'm holding up my life and surrendering it to God. It's I'm trusting in God, but it's also I'm treasuring God. Faith is trusting and treasuring God. It's treasuring God where you love him, you're pursuing him. He is the desire of your heart. This is what faith is. It's responding to God, trusting him and treasuring him above all things. It must be received personally. Okay, then he goes on. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, verse 2, and by which you are being saved. The gospel saves. Isn't that a glorious truth? The gospel saves. Okay, now we've talked about this in, in, in salvation in three tenses, where you've got salvation past. The gospel saves from the, from the penalty of sin, from the wrath of God. But it's also got a present reality. The gospel is saving. It's currently saving you from the power of sin. And it's also got this future reality. That the gospel will save you finally and completely from the presence of sin. But here's what Paul's saying. The only means of salvation is through the gospel. There is not another way, Acts 4, that there is salvation in no one else. 
John 14, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. There is no other ways. It is through the gospel and through the gospel alone, right? So if we want neighbors to be saved, if we want them to be freed from the penalty of sin, the, the, and Romans is going to say the wages of sin is death. If we want people to be freed from that, it is only through the gospel that that happens. If you want your Christian friends to be continually saved, presently saved from the power of sin in their life, if you want them to look more like Jesus, if you want them to love Jesus more, that comes through the gospel alone. And if you long for a day where there is no more death, no more cancer, no more disease, no more pain, no more tears, where we are finally and completely freed from the presence of sin, that only comes through the gospel. The gospel is what saves. God, through the gospel, saves. And that way alone. Okay, then he goes on. Now, I would remind you, brothers... Of the gospel I preach to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Okay, then he's going to give this, this fifth idea here. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. Okay, now I, I want you just to underline a word, or maybe circle four words in this passage. First word. Verse 1. Now, I remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you. Underline that word preached. And then look down in verse 2. And by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word, I preached to you. Verse 3. For I delivered. It's the exact same thing as preaching. He's saying, I, I delivered this gospel. I preached the gospel to you. Circle that word delivered. And then look down at verse 11. All the way down at the end of the passage. Whether then it was I or they, so we preached and so you believed. Here's what Paul's saying. The gospel must be preached. It must be preached. There's no other way for the gospel to get out. It must be preached. It is something that is meant to be declared from our lips. Okay, now we can kind of lift this theme out of the scriptures here. Um, in Luke 5, you've got Jesus. He's calling these disciples. He calls Peter. And he says, now I'm going to make you fishers of men. That, that your life is going to display the gospel and your lips are going to declare the gospel. Matthew 28, one of the most famous passages in the Bible. If you've grown up in the church, you probably know this one. Matthew 28, 18, where he tells them, here's what, here's, your, here's the job, here's the mission. Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you, that your, your life is to display the gospel and your lips are to declare it so that people become disciples. Acts 1, 8, so you'll receive power from the Holy Spirit, He's going to come upon you and you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to display the gospel in your life and you're going to preach it. You're going to declare it from your lips. And then all through the book of Acts, you see this idea of preaching the gospel, preaching Jesus. Okay, this is kind of just working through the book of Acts here. In Acts 5, you've got the apostles who have been in, uh, imprisoned. They've been arrested and then kind of scourged and then set free. And at the end of, of chapter 5, here's what it says about them. And every day in the temple court, it would be like this sort of a setting, and from house to house, not just here, from house to house. Um, it says this, that they did not um, cease teaching and preaching Jesus as the Christ. This is a normal thing. This is what they were doing. In Acts chapter 8, the church is being persecuted. Stephen has just been slaughtered. 
and now the, 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 church of, uh, the church of Christ is being persecuted and plundered. And it scatters the church. And in Acts 4, or 8, 4, it says, and they were scattered, and everywhere they went, they were preaching the gospel. If you move forward in, into Romans, Paul says in Romans 1.15, I am eager to preach the gospel. Are you eager for that? I mean, is that an eager thing in you? At the end of Romans, I love what, what Paul says. He's really given kind of the mission statement of his life. And, and here's what he says about it. Romans 15, 20, he says this. Thus I make it my ambition to preach the gospel. Is that, is, are those sort of ambitions that you have? I mean, when you think of your bucket list, is that, I mean, is that on the list? Does that make your, your ambitions? Is that in that category of things? Um, later on, Paul is writing a letter to Timothy who's pastoring the church in Ephesus in 2 Timothy 4, 2, and he tells him, be ready to preach the gospel in season, out of season. Preach it. The gospel must, we can camp here forever. But here's what Paul's saying. This gospel has to be preached. It's got to be preached. And so I want you to think maybe of the church this way. The church is the people of God who have been given the mission of God to take the message of God, this beautiful gospel, to the ends of the earth for the name of God, for the glory of God. This is what the church is about. We are a sent people who have been entrusted with this mission, with this beautiful gospel message to proclaim. This is what we're, what we're doing here. This is the mission. And that mission will not be, cannot be accomplished apart from preaching apart from declaring it with our lips. Okay, so here's what this means. In your neighborhood, your neighbors are not going to to be saved by the gospel because you are a good guy who shows them what a good marriage looks like, who raises your kids to be pretty good kids. They're not going to know the gospel. If that's what you're banking on, here's what's going to happen. One of these days, they're going to die, and here's what they're going to know that you're a pretty good guy who raised a pretty good family and have a pretty good marriage. But they're not going to know Jesus because how you love your wife. That can only be known when it is declared from your lips. It can be supported with your life, but it can only be known when it's declared from your lips. The mission of God requires us proclaiming the gospel. Okay, then Paul goes on to clarify what we're proclaiming. He, He clarifies what the gospel is. Look in verse 3 and 4 here. He says this, that Christ died for your sin. That Christ, Son of God, fully God, fully human, lived a perfect life in your place. And he died on the cross in your stead, in your place. He took the death that you deserved. He was buried in a tomb three days, and he rose from the dead, showing his power over sin, Satan, and death. And now he has ascended to heaven where he and the, and the Father have sent the Spirit To apply the salvation that the Father appointed and the Son accomplished on the cross. This is what we're proclaiming. And it is only when people turn and put their faith, trust, and treasure that that they're saved. It takes proclamation for that to happen. Okay. Now, I want to, I want to just stop here and we're going to spend some time and I want to just kind of outline why I think this is so important. And why there's an angst in me to spend two months on this issue with this group of people. Reason number one. The people of God 
are not on the mission of God. So let me apply this personally. We. I, I don't think that we are on the mission of God like God would call us to be. That I, like the, the gospel, when it sets in us, when it takes root in us, moves us to mission. But I think there's a gospel gap that's here. And, and so, okay, so let's just define the mission. And by the way, I, I'm about to say some pretty hard things. And I, I'm going to use some general categories, j- just a general we's and them's and us's. And I hope you're the exception. But I want you to know, here's the posture of my own heart in this, that I'm a fellow traveler. I'm not a tour guide here. I am in need of a lot of grace when it comes to this issue. Okay. Matthew 28 gives us a real clear definition of what the mission is. Go make disciples of all nations. Baptize them. Teach them to observe all that he's commanded. In other words, get the gospel displayed in your life. Allow the gospel to flow through your lips. Declare it with your lips. And then allow God to do what only God can do. Bringing dead people to life. Allow him to do that and watch him work through that. Watch him work through the gospel in your life, on your lips, and watch him save people. And then we get this beautiful privilege of walking with people, showing them how to walk in the ways of God. This is the mission. Take the message, get it out, and allow God to do what only he can do. But here's the truth. We're not on the mission of God. See, there's a lot of other competing missions. I mean, there's a thousand other missions that compete for our time and attention. There is the family raising mission. There is the business building mission. There is the marriage working mission. There is the raise your kid to be the next LeBron James, even though he's four foot five mission, right? A lot of parents are on that one. I mean, there's a thousand other missions. And it's not that those missions are, are bad. Most of those are really good missions. But it's this, that those are not central Central is the mission of God to get the gospel out. We use all of these other things as avenues for that. But here's the problem with the people of God, us, I think me, you, is there has been mission drift where we have left the mission of God and we have made other missions central. Okay, now I I could just bomb away here and trying to prove this to you. I, we, I mean, we could go through stats left and right here. I mean, there, there's, I mean, probably for me, one of the most convincing and scary and frightening all that at the same time is just the idea that 95% of people who call themselves Christians never speak the gospel to people who are not Christians. 95%. And I think we could camp here forever and just bomb away with these statistics. But I, I just want to ask you questions about your own life and press into you. Because he, I, I, I'm convinced that for most of us in here, there is a huge gap between what the gospel produces in us and is supposed to produce in us and where we are. So let me just ask you questions. Have you had the joyful experience of, of displaying the gospel with your life, declaring it with your lips, and watching God save people through that? Now listen to what I'm not saying. I'm not saying did you invite someone to church and allow the pastor to speak for you. I'm saying in your life, displayed with your life, coming from your lips, has that happened? And if if just statistics would hold true, there might be one or two hands in a, in a room like this that would say yes to that. And if you get outside of kids, I mean, that that's almost non-existent in the church. 
where, where these things happen. Okay, let me go one step further. In the last month, how many gospel conversations have you had with people who are not Christians, who do not know Jesus? We'll be gracious, say two months. Three months. Six months. I mean, I, you just give me a time, right? And, and if statistics would hold kind of true in here, it would be non-existent. We don't have conversations with people who don't know Jesus. And when I say we, I'm just talking church in general. Church world, our culture in general. We don't do that. Okay, let's press this one step further. Do you know people who don't know Jesus? Like when I say no, I'm not talking about, well, I know their name. We work together. They're in the cubicle beside me. I'm not saying that. I'm saying, have you invited them into your life? Had them over to dinner at your table where you know their kids, you know their background, you know their struggles, you know what's going on in them. See, the reason that we don't speak the gospel to people who do not know Jesus is because we do not know people who do not know Jesus. We have walled our life off to people who are outside the kingdom of God. And that's here. This is us. This isn't just that. This is, this is the people of God in our culture. We don't know people who don't know Jesus. We live and we build our life around people that do. I, I like how one pastor said it, that there is an inevitable inertia toward inwardness in a church. See, this is the danger. The longer you become a Christian, the more likely it is that every relational slot that you have in your life is filled with a Christian. See, th this is our problem. We don't know Christians, so we don't declare Christ, or we don't know people who don't know Christ, so we don't talk about the gospel to them. And because we don't talk about the gospel to people who don't know Jesus, we don't see God raising dead people to life through us. Let me press it one step further. It's not only that we don't know them, it's that they're not, it's not like a thing that's even on our radar. I, I, I could ask this question. Are you consistently and fervently and urgently pleading with God through prayer to save people who are lost around you? And you know what the overwhelming answer I think for all of us would be? Is that we're not doing that. See, th this is the issue that has to be addressed here. Is we, we want the gospel to do its full work in us. And the gospel does not leave you sitting. It sends us as a sent people, as a missionary people, with the mission of God and the message of God to proclaim. I, I, I've, I don't know, if, if you've been around church world and maybe even worked in church world, you've probably heard this statistic before, but um, I, I've heard this used to support a lot of different things, but um, the, the statistic goes that four out of five, 80% of people who come to know Jesus do so before the age of 18. Okay, so, so this, is, this is what's commonly said right after that. So we've got to get after people who are less than 18. I mean, we've got to really get this thing working Get some good evangelism going in our youth. Get, I mean, get this thing working when they're early, susceptible, and, and open to the gospel. Okay, and I'm all for doing great evangelism for people who are under 18. We're going to do that. We are doing that. We need to do that. But you know what's never addressed in that statistic? I mean, it's almost like an assumed, well, when they get after, eight, like, post-18, then they're just hardened to the gospel and they're not going to respond to it. That is not right. 
mean, that, that is, that is a faulty claim. You know why 80% of the people who come to know Jesus do so before they're 18? It's because adult Christians don't share the gospel because they don't know people who are not Christians. And because they're not praying fervently and urgently for people who are not Christians. That's why that statistic is true. And so rather than saying, let's build a whole thing around evangelizing young people, what if we said, let's evangelize everybody? Let's take this, this message of the gospel and get it to kids. And let's get it to adults and let's take it to your neighborhood and to your workplace and everywhere you go. I mean, that, that's the solution to that statistic, right? Okay, so, so this is our first problem. Is there's a personal problem where just us, you and I, the people of God, there has been mission drift. Mission to us means inviting people so somebody else can preach for you. Okay, that's one problem. Second problem is the church of God has experienced the same mission drift. We're not in the mission of God here. Okay, so let me, let me try to clarify this one. You're gonna have to hang with me to, to kind of get this. You're gonna have to do some thinking here with me. Early church. Let's go back early church. In the early church, this is the context that the early church was in. You had a culture and you had a marginalized church. And I want you to see this. The church was marginalized. The church was not central to culture. Jewish people hated Christians, right? I mean, they killed Stephen in Acts 7. They were plundering property. Paul was on the rampage putting people in prison. It it was not a pretty thing for Christians. Jewish people didn't like them. Roman people didn't like them. Roman people considered Christians atheists because they were monotheistic. They didn't worship all their gods. So nobody liked them. From the cultural perspective, they looked at Christians as that sort of weird minority group on the edge. Okay, but the church of God did just fine in a marginalized situation like this. And here's why they did just fine. Because they had the mission of God and the message of God, and they went with it. They just heard um, Jesus say, go and make disciples. They just heard him say, the Holy Spirit's going to come, and you're going to be my witnesses. Take this mission, get this message, and go. So here's what the early church did. From the margins, they had a go-and-tell mentality. They were primarily missional. They took the gospel and they went into culture with it. Okay. Fourth century, everything changes. Something known as Christendom sets in. Fourth century, a, a Roman emperor... Constantine comes to power and he wins a war and he's convinced that it was because of Christianity that he won it. So he turns the entire Roman Empire into a Christian empire. It became the end thing at this point. There's no more underground church. It's an above ground church. Now you've got these massive buildings that are built, you know, government money building these things. It is the end thing. In Christendom, here's the situation. The church is in the middle of culture and the church permeates all of culture. That the flavor of the church is everywhere in the culture. You can't do things without doing it through the lens of the church. Christianity, the culture is Christianized. Christianity sits under the culture as a sustaining kind of influence. And it it sits over the culture as the way we talk about things. It sits over the, the culture in Christendom in the way we look at the world. So in Christendom, behaviors that are biblical are are encouraged. 
in Christendom, behaviors that are not biblical are ostracized. They're beat up on. Because the culture, by and large, has a Christianized feel to it. The culture looks at Christianity favorably. They care about Christianity. It doesn't mean everybody's converted. It just means that the culture is, by and large, Christianized. Okay, now, now in, in the middle, oh, and by the way, that 4th century AD spread all the way through Europe, across to England, and eventually was exported to the United States. And that is why, this is why when the Middle East looks at America, they would consider it a Christian country. Because they look at what Christendom has done. It, it's made America, um, very early on, Christianized. That the way we viewed life, even in our government documents, all that has a Christianized feel to it. We pray in our schools. We do, it's just, a, the culture is Christianized. It doesn't mean everybody's Christians, but it means that if you were a Muslim country, you would look at that and say, that's a Christian country. Okay, now in the middle of this, here's how the church responded to Christendom. Rather than go and tell, they didn't have to go and tell anymore. Their culture already knew. So what the church did is they went from go and tell to now it's come and see. See, now the church is completely different. Now we're going to build big, nice buildings, do, do big, beautiful things. And rather than going with the gospel into our culture, here's what we do. Now we go with invitations to invite people into the church so they can come and see all the stuff we want them to see. This is how the church responds. So, so now the church is in the center, and now it's become a come and see mentality. So now, okay, now, now take this in America, how this has worked itself out. This is why um, in America, th- this is how churches kind of position themselves, and this is their strategy for, for growth and how they're going to reach people, is they, they do things that appeal to Christianized people. And so we're going to build big, big, nice buildings, and we're going to invite people to come and see them. So in these big, nice buildings, we're going to have like a four-story slide, right? That's going to come down. Barney, animatronics, going to teach the lesson to the little kids. We're going to have 94 game stations with the youth. And people who are Christians care about that. Christianized people will come to that. And so they come and see. As long as, okay, in a, in a Christianized culture, as long as you can do church better than other people, people will come to your place. So the goal is just to do church better than other people are doing it. And so in Christian, and now here's the thing. I don't want to just slam all this. For almost every one of us in here, you can't, if you're a Christian, you came to Christ in a church that's primarily attractional, that primarily said, you come and see, and we'll have, so somebody offered you an invitation. They didn't speak the gospel to you. They offered you an invitation. You came into a room like this, a preacher or a pastor spoke the gospel, you responded in faith, trusted and treasured Jesus, and here you are. So it's not that it's all bad. I don't want you to think that. But it just works in a Christianized culture. It just works when the culture cares about what you say. It just works when, when the culture is willing to come and see. Okay, now, now let me jump to where we are today. Fast forward, 21st century. We're no longer in America in Christendom. We're no longer there. We are now moving back to that first century view where the culture is here and the church is on the outside. This is where we are today. And listen, the, the reason that churches in our, in our little area, the Bible Belt, can still do a, we just need to do church better than the people over there, 
The reason that still works here is we're like that last little remnant in our country that kind of has this Christianized feel to it. But it's a shrinking minority. It's here, but it's leaving. It's not staying forever. And so, so in our country, this is where we are. We have moved back to the culture at large, and now the church is ostracized. It's the minority. And here's how this works out in our culture. It's not that you're being plundered and persecuted tomorrow. That's not how it works out. But here's how it's worked. That the church has been pushed from the public forum and the public square. So if you were to go back a hundred years ago, the church was in the public square. I mean, it was visibly spoken everywhere. But now it has been pushed to the privacy of your home. You look like an idiot if you're on TV and you bring up Jesus. See, it's pushed now to the privacy of your home. From the public to the private. This is what it looks like. So now we are moving back to this, to the margins. Now here is the problem. The problem is we still have the Christendom mentality. We still have come and see when nobody cares about coming and seeing what we have. Leslie Newbegin, he was a missionary um, from England to India in the 1950s. He left India, went or left England, went to India, and here's the first two things that shocked him about doing missions in India. First was it was a culture that was not Christianized. It was a culture that had the church as the ostracized minority. That was the first thing. Second thing is he noticed that the church was not a come and see place. The church was a missional place. It was a sending place. It wasn't come and see. It was a go and tell. People did not invite people. The the primary mode of evangelism was not an invitation to a church. The primary mode of evangelism was I'm going to befriend and love this person as Jesus has loved me, even in my rebellion. I'm going to invite them into my life. And as the Holy Spirit moves, I'm going to speak the gospel and connect it to their life. It was a go-and-tell church, and the church was exploding. It was doing great there. 30 years later, he moves back to England, and this is what he discovered. He discovered that the England he left, 1950, that was Christianized, in in the 1980s, was no longer Christianized. It was no, the predominant influence of the culture was no longer Christian. But here was the problem. He looked at the church And the church was still doing all of their things in the exact same way. And this is the church, churches, this is the problem. We are come and see people. Here's how the church, here's how the church grows here. This is how it goes down. Is, is we think that sending a better mailer, right? This is our answer. We think that getting the bear on the tricycle in the foyer is going to get people in the building. For the people who are Christians that care, it will. But here's the problem. Come and see only works for that shrinking percentage of our community that is Christianized. Let me put it this way. The atheist in your neighborhood does not care about our mailers. They don't care how good of a sermon I'm preaching They don't care how nice our bulletin looks. They don't care about any of this stuff going on here. So so we can do all of those things, and it will be a great way to attract people who are Christianized. But your atheist neighbor is not going to respond to that. Here's what they would respond to. You befriending them, inviting them into your life, 
loving them as God has loved you, as the Spirit prompts speaking the gospel into their life, showing how it connects with the, the primary needs of their life, and then you get to watch God do His thing. It is only a go-and-tell church that will reach those people. Okay, so let me just kind of back up and just speak just pastorally to, to you guys. We are still come and see. Almost all of us in here, our mode of evangelism is, we've got, we've got a great thing on Sunday morning. Why don't you come and, and go to church with us? Come, come and let, I, I'm going to get them to preach the gospel for me. I, I just want to tell you, it's, that will only reach this segment of our community that is Christianized. That's it. So, so if that's, if that's who we stay, if we're content with being that, then all we're going to do is reach people that, that have these Christian roots that have this Christianized past, that care about what's happening, right? But but we cannot be that sort of a place. I can't be a pastor that stays there. We have got to become a go and tell people. This is the only way that that huge, massive people in our culture will ever hear the gospel. It is the only way they are going to hear the gospel. If we stay, come and see. We are walling ourselves up to everybody who is not Christianized. We we are effectively stiff-arming everybody that is not rooted in some way, shape, or form in Christianity. And that percentage of people is shrinking all around us. So here's what Paul's saying, is that we have got to be people who have the gospel displayed in our life, and then we've got to be people who are declaring it with our lips. It's got to be you. It can't just be me. It can't just be three of us. It's got to be all of us. The church is the sent people of God who have the mission of God, have this beautiful gospel that they are giving and proclaiming and displaying to the culture at large as they go and tell it. This is the church. And it is my hope that God would move us there, that that God would settle this gospel that sends us deep into our hearts so that we would become a sent people. Okay, we'll end with this. Like, the question becomes, how, how do you move in that direction? Like, like, what is it? And I think this would be normal. Normal would be for a preacher like me to say something like this. To throw in a big dose of guilt, right? Like, to really go hard on the guilt. And if, if you're a decent Christian, I mean, you'd, you'd do this, right? Um, or I could go the fear route, right? You're going to stand before God someday. I mean, is this that how you're going to stand before him like, so you could go guilt and fear, and that's the predominant way that people like to motivate from the stage. That is not a good way to motivate. Okay, we're not going that route. The gospel is what moves us to mission. It's only through the gospel that we'll move there. Maybe you could think of it this way. Picture that girl that just got proposed to. I mean, like last night, a rot just slid on her finger. Okay. She walks in here this morning. Do you have to ask her what's going on in her life? 
I, I, what's new? What's, what's that? You don't even have to ask. You know how she comes in? She comes in like this, right? She comes in with a message to say, with a message to proclaim. Do you know why she does that? Because she sees the good news that has just happened to her. She looks at her future husband and thinks, I need to tell the world that I'm a taken girl. That I just got the, the, the guy of my dreams. I'm going to tell everybody this. It is only when you start to see the gospel like this that you'll start to speak of it like that. So see, we could talk guilt and fear all day, but it will last until you get home. But when you start to see the gospel as this great news of God reconciling people who are lost back to himself, then it becomes the thing that you walk around with like this, proclaiming and saying and speaking and declaring and displaying to everybody. So here's how Paul ends. Verse 8. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he, Jesus, appeared also to me. That Jesus appeared to him. And he, when you, just a, a consistent motif throughout the scripture is when God appears to somebody, when God blesses somebody, when God lavishes grace on somebody, he does that for a reason. Not so you hoard grace up, but so you, like Abraham, so that you are blessed, so that now you can be a blessing to the nations. The Okay, listen, if you are saved, God saved you and he has now sent you. Okay, this is the reality. When God draws us near, he then pushes us to go. Think about Moses. God communicates to Moses and here's what he says. Now go. Think about Paul. He miraculously saves Paul in Acts chapter 9 and he immediately shows him how much he's going to suffer as he carries the name of Christ to the Gentiles. When God saves, he sins. When God appears, draws you near, he sends you. He goes on, verse 9. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. Isn't it amazing how the gospel humbles us? When we see an accurate picture of who God is, what we are, our great need for the grace of God, it's a humbling thing. And it, I love just the flavor of this verse. I think you get an, just a feel and a sense of just the, the, the in allness that, that Paul has that God has saved him. That the grace of God has made him what he is. If you're a Christian in the room, do you have a sense of awe at what God has made you? Is there a sense of awe with that? That by the grace of God, he has made me what I am. By the grace of God, he has adopted me into his family. He has given me all the promises of scripture. He has made me an heir of all that he has. He has secured heaven for me. He has given me himself. I mean, is there, does that stir up awe in you? I mean, you get this sense when Paul says, for by the grace of God, I am what I am. And this is what he says, and his grace toward me was not in vain. That this grace in him caused movement in Paul. He did not sit with it. And like, I just want to ask this question to us. Is the grace of God in your life in vain right now? I mean, for me, that's a convicting question to answer. 
Is the grace of God flowing through you or is it stopped with you? And then he goes on to to finish it this way. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. This is what the gospel produced in him. I love in Romans where he has been saved by the gospel and he says, I am under obligation to preach this gospel now. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in me. Whether then it was I or they, and this is what he says, so we preach. The gospel moved him, motivated him to display the gospel with his life, declare it with his lips. And then look at this last four words. Talking to the Corinthian believers, and he says, so we preached, and so you believed. Wouldn't it be a beautiful thing if in your neighborhood... In five years from now, that you would be able to say, the grace of God has made me what I am and it was not in vain. I preached and you, neighbor, you were saved. You believed. You, coworker, you believed. You, hard-hearted atheist, you believed. You, Muslim, you believed. You, agnostic, doesn't care about what you believe. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? I, I pray that God takes us there over the next couple of months. That he convicts us in these areas, causes good repentance to happen. And let me end it with this quote from Charles Spurgeon. <clears throat> let, me, let me ask you this question. Do you want this for our church? I, I desperately want this. But I want you to know that this comes with a cost. There's a cost associated with this. Here's, here's how Spurgeon, we'll let him end it for us. He says this, prepare yourselves. If you want this sort of a place, if you want to be this sort of a people, if you want to live as sent people, prepare yourselves to see and suffer many things with which you would rather be unacquainted. Experiences which would be unnecessary to you personally will become your portion if the Lord uses you for the salvation of others. And I pray that God would count us worthy to give us that portion so God can work salvation in the people around us. Let's pray. I want to just give you a second to lay that over your life. A missionary God sending a people on his mission with his message that we proclaim to all the world for our God's great name. And I I think this morning would be a good morning to confess to God in areas where we are are really deficient here. To, To be able to confess to God that my life does not look like this. And I think this would be a good step for this morning is to repent. To to confess that sin and to turn toward Jesus in faith. Asking Him, praying over your own life and heart, over our church, that He would make us this sort of ascent people. And and maybe just as as an act of surrender this morning, toward this, maybe this would be a great time for you just to be able to express to God your repentance 
and, and just to open back up your hands to God and to say, God, my, my life is yours in this. God, that I want the gospel to find deep roots in my heart and I want it to come out in a life that displays it and lips that proclaim it. So maybe that, that would be a good step this morning just to be able to open our hands and just to say, God, I am yours. Confessing that I have not lived as the sent people that you have called me to live. That that I've I've had this mission drift where, where all these other things have become central other than the mission of taking God's message this beautiful gospel. And so God, I I confess those, repent of those, ask you to work change in my heart. And God, I'm, I'm just re, re-giving. I'm just, I'm just placing my life in your hands, asking you to take me there. I pray that for you, for our church. That God would do that. Jesus, we love you. We thank you for this gospel that we need to be reminded of. This gospel that you have died, that you were buried, and that you have been raised from the dead. This gospel where where you take all of our guilt and we get all of your perfection. Where, Where you get the wrath of God and we get the love of God. Where we get your pardon, we get your perfection. God, I... I thank you for this gospel and I pray that it would make us a sent people, a go and tell people. So Jesus, it's in your great name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.